Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Our topic tonight, which is entitled The Afterlife and the Spirit World. Hmm. Yes, sounds a little confronting, but there's information here which I'm going to share with you, which will be incredibly enlightening. Each of us recognize that death has cast its cruel shadow upon this earth since the beginning. But what makes death so scary, apart from the, uh, the not knowing when it's going to come, but what makes death so scary is the confusion over death and what happens after death and also the pain and the suffering that people experience uh, who have been left behind, so to speak. This is what makes death so horrible. You know, I've led many funeral services over the years and I've seen waves of grief just just erupt across entire family groups because they haven't understood what happens at death. They don't know what the Bible has said. They've had no relationship with God and so they have this constant fear, this horror about death because they don't know about death. They don't know what the Bible actually says and to most people, death is a dark specter that marks the end of each and every life and it fills people with absolute horror. Now I'm not saying for a moment that death is something that we should welcome, we should invite. I'm not talking about that at all. But there's a peace that passes all understanding when you understand what the Bible actually teaches on this subject and not to embrace some pagan idea that has entered its uh, entered into Christianity which has marred the character of God or our view of the character of God and also the mercy and the goodness of God. You know, there have been books and there are videos, there are movies and I'm sure you've all heard about these near-death experiences and where people die and they'll be on an operating table and they'll die and they've said that they've floated up out of their bodies and they've looked down upon themselves or they've, they've been in a situation where they've drowned and they've had this out-of-body experience. You know, these sort of things. We, we call these near-death experiences and it's commonly reported um, in the media these days It doesn't fascinate people the way it normally has. But the reality is that science has been able to prove for us that these near-death experiences can be duplicated in experimental situations. And what scientists say and what the medical fraternity says is that when a person has a lack of oxygen coming to the brain, so if they're suffocating, if there's a restriction of oxygen in the blood system that goes to the brain, then that person will experience exactly what other people claim is out-of-body experiences. Astronauts also experience the same thing when they are going through the rigour and preparation for space flight. When they're in those gravitational chambers and you see these, these devices whirling around, whirling around, and increases the G-force on the brine, often 
astronauts will black out or some astronauts will black out. Why? Because the blood flow has been restricted to the brain, therefore oxygen has been restricted to the brain. And after the experiment has finished, the same, same astronauts will say that they experienced out-of-body experiences. They saw bright lights, but this is just a manifestation that happens in the brain because of the lack of oxygen to the brain. In fact, doctors, surgeons will say that people say that they've had an out-of-body out of experiences after an anesthesiologist has put them to sleep and it's restricted the flow of blood to the brain. So what we understand about these people who have these near-death experiences is they're not completely dead. Their heartbeats may stop for a while, which restricts the flow of blood to the brain, but they are not brain dead. You see, from cardiac arrest, there is a coming back. People can be resuscitated in time, within seven or eight minutes, something like that. There is that time. But when a person is brain dead, that's it. That is it. And none of the people who experience near-death experiences actually experience day brain death. Furthermore, let's not forget, let's remind ourselves that brain dead sorry, that near-death experiences can be duplicated in laboratory situations. Now, does anybody know who this man is here? This man is Kerry Packer. Uh, he was uh, once touted as the richest man in Australia, which he was. But in 1990, he had an accident. He, had a, he fell, uh, fell from a horse. I think this is what happened while playing polo. And he suffered a massive heart attack. And he was clinically dead for seven minutes before paramedics came to his aid and resuscitated him and revived him. And then a little later, Kerry Packer, Kerry Packer was asked about his experience in death. Now, remember, he was clinically dead for seven minutes. But Kerry Packer famously quipped this. He says, I've been to the other side and let me tell you, son, there's nothing there. Wait a moment. Kerry Packer was clinically dead for seven minutes and he says, I've been to the other side and there's nothing there. Whereas you have other people who say whose, whose um, oxygen has been deprived to the brain. They say that say, they see bright lights, they see a tunnel, they have these out-of-body experiences. So who is right? Who is wrong? The, the re reality is that only one person that we know has really been dead, that is brain dead in every sense of the word, and has come back to tell the tale, and that was Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was dead in every sense of the word. And what did Jesus have to say on the subject? Well, in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may, what? What's that word there? Though he may die, he shall live again. Now, Jesus makes it very plain here that there is life after death. And he says for those people who have an opportunity to know about him, if they believe, if they trust in Jesus, even though they may die, they shall have what? They shall live again. 
Jesus also uh, reiterates this same point on the night of his arrest. This is recorded in John, John chapter 14, 1 to 3. And Jesus is speaking to the disciples there. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus didn't say here that he's gone to prepare a cloud for you, did he? No, no. He didn't say that he's gone to prepare a harp for you, did he? No, he didn't say anything like that. He said he's gone to prepare a place for you, something real, something tactile, something tangible. He didn't say anything about the saints floating on clouds, strumming harps, dressed in nappies. He didn't say anything like that. He says, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if we were to read on there in verse 3, it would say that he's going to prepare a place for you. And if he goes and prepares a place for you, he's coming back for you. We call that the second coming. That's what we refer to. Uh, The book of Titus identifies that promise as as Jesus as the blessed hope. It's the fondest thought of God's people. And as I say, the place that Jesus has uh, prepared for us is real. He says, and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So that's clear. This is the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and then I'm coming back for you to take you back to my father's house. And uh, at the time of Christ's second coming, God's people will be rewarded. They'll be rewarded with immortality and incorruptibility. We looked at this in our presentation on the second coming of Christ. And those who have decided or those people who have turned their backs on God, they will be dealt with otherwise, as the Bible says. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, we read these words. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. So according to the Bible, Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, he says when Jesus comes back to this earth, he will reward everybody according to their works. In other words, every person is going to be judged, uh, every person having been judged based on their life performance, so to speak, are going to be dealt with uh, in a commensurate fashion. Um, Now, as we've previously seen in these studies as well, that there's nothing secretive about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's nothing where the Bible uh, tells us that Jesus is going to come back and people won't know that it's actually happened. People won't suddenly disappear from around us. The Bible makes it very clear at the time of Christ's second coming, the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. And in fact, the Bible is clear on this and it's repeated over and over again. You see, in the Christian fraternity today, there's this belief that when Jesus Christ comes back, he comes back in secret and nobody sees him. But they also teach for those people who are left behind, they get a second chance later on. Well, I've just got to tell you, the Bible doesn't um, uh, support a teaching 
like that whatsoever. The Apostle Paul talks about the reward given at, to the righteous at the time when Christ returns. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, we read this. For the Lord himself shall what? He shall descend from heaven. Remember, Jesus says, um, I'll go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back again. The Apostle Paul is talking about the coming back again of Jesus. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are, what does that word say there? We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall what? We shall always be with the Lord's. So God's people are rewarded at the second coming of Jesus Christ. God's people are not rewarded at death any more than those who have chosen to turn their backs on God are punished at death. People are not given immortality at death any more than a person uh, who has turned their backs on God are given immortality and they suffer in eternity, in hell for eternity because, because the Bible just doesn't teach that. The reward of the righteous is given at the second coming of Christ. So when a person dies, they sleep. They wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we've learned now and we understand that the righteous are not being rewarded now and the wicked are not being punished now. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, 28 and 29. He said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. So the Bible says that everyone, both the good and the bad, who have heard, will hear his voice. Notice now, and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus identifies two resurrections here. He talks about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of life happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of condemnation we will see in two weeks time when we do our study on the thousand years. The resurrection of condemnation happens at the end of the thousand years. But we will do a thorough study on that as we immerse ourselves in the book of Revelation, as I said, in a couple of weeks time. But there's this gap, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation and uh, returning to the resurrection of the just it's at that point in time that God's people are rewarded they're rewarded with immortality they're rewarded with incorruptibility God's people at this point in time do not have immortality they're not given that until the second coming of Christ therefore what we can the conclusion we can come to now is that uh, immortality is a gift that happens at the second coming of Christ. Therefore, God's people have to wait until they receive that gift when Jesus Christ returns. You know, this view uh, that I've presented to you, rather this doctrine that I've presented to you, 
is clearly repeated throughout the whole Testament. It's actually not limited to the New Testament. Uh, it's in fact in the whole Bible. For example, if we go back to Job chapter 14, now Job was written 1500 years before the time of Christ and it says this, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Let's pause here for a moment. When are the heavens no more? Well, the heavens are no more at the time of Christ's second coming. We, in our study, um, on the second coming of Christ, we saw that at the time of Christ's second coming, the sky recedes as a scroll. In other words, the atmosphere is removed. The sun doesn't give its light. The moon doesn't give its light. The stars fall from heaven, the Bible says. And that word stars there is just referring to asteroids, asteroides. I think the Greek word is there. It's an, but uh, uh, the point being that there are things that happen in the natural world at the second coming of Christ. And when Moses wrote the book of Job about 1500 BC, uh, he, as he remembers the word of Job, he says, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. This is a clear reference to the second coming of Christ. They will not awake nor be roused from their what? What does it say there? They will not be aroused from their sleep. Now, in this passage here, we discover that death and sleep are used interchangeably. In fact, the Bible refers to death as a sleep over and over again. It's referred to as a dreamless sleep. It's one of those sleeps that, have you, have you ever gone to bed at night and you've put your head on the pillow and the very next thing you hear uh, six or eight hours later is the alarm going, you've had that sort of dreamless sleep? Well, that's how the Bible describes death. There's no sense of the passing of time. So a person falls asleep and the next thing they're going to hear is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find the same repeated, as I said, in the book of Job, written 1500 years before the time of Christ. We read this in Job chapter 7, verse 9. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return he will never come to his house again now this is very clear it tells us that when a person dies they never come back to their house again well what we understand from this then that's impossible for the the for men and women who die to come back and to communicate with men other men and women who are alive it's an impossibility according to the bible for them to come back to a house and haunt it even if there are people there that they've hated and despised their entire lives they're not going to come back at death and haunt those people or occupy a house or occupy a room because the bible says they do not return he will never come into his house again so this is the clear testimony of the scripture also remaining in job job chapter 16 verse 22 it says when a few years are come then i shall go the way whence i shall not return here job is talking about death and he's saying i will go but he said i won't be coming back at all see the bible does not teach 
that when a person dies, they can communicate with uh, people who are alive, whether it's by a seance, whether it's by a medium, whatever it may be. The Bible says that is an impossibility because people just die. You know, when we think of near-death experiences and the like, and uh, people say that they've left their bodies and they, they uh, come back and into their bodies, they're on the operating table and they float up out of their bodies and they look down upon themselves or they see a bright light or a tunnel at the end of the bright light. The implication here is that God's made a mistake. That, you know, God said, whoops, I'm sorry, I didn't realise, but it's actually not your time yet. You can actually, actually go back. You know, this is preposterous to think along these ways because God doesn't make any mistakes and near-death experiences are not near-death experiences at all. They're just an hallucination in the brain. That's all they are. Notice here what we read in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, And as it is appointed unto men once to what? Once to die, but after this, the judgment. So the Bible says that we are to die how many times? Just once. Does it say, oh, well, let's not forget about uh, near-death experiences as well? No, it doesn't say that because death is when a person is brain dead. There's no coming back from that type of brain death. And then the Bible says, but after this, the judgment. The Bible teaches that a person never returns back to this earth once they are dead. We only have this, this life. And what we do with this life will determine uh, what will happen for us to, in eternity. Will we spend eternity with Jesus Christ or we just simply cease to exist? Now, you say, what? Cease to exist? That's right. The lights go out. There's no coming back for those people who have eventually turned their, who turned their backs on God because the Bible talks about the resurrection of life and the word life there is important because it means that those who are risen at the time of Christ's second coming, they have life and they have immortal life, eternal life. But there's another uh, resurrection. It's known as the resurrection of condemnation. And for those people who rise at that resurrection, there is, there is condemnation. They are condemned at that point in time. And the Bible teaches us that at that point in time, they perish. You say, come on, this must be a new teaching that you're sharing with us here, Rod. No, it's not. I can assure you. In probably the most famous verse in the Bible, in John chapter 3:16, Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? What's the word there? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word perish there means cease to exist. It means the cessation of life. Jesus says, uh, those who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's very clear. The contrast is clear. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the apostle Paul says this, for the wages of sin is, what? Now we've already discovered what sin is. Sin is the breaking of the commandments of God. We know that, but it says for the wages of sin is death. So what you deserve because of your rebellion against God is death. But the gift of God is what? 
eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, the point is made that for those who accept Jesus Christ, there's life. For those who don't, it's going to be death, extinction. They, they will not have a second chance. They will not have a second opportunity to get things right. This life is all that we actually have. Now, when we study the scripture, we see that uh, the Bible teaches that we were actually formed from the dust of the earth. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says that God formed us from the dust of the earth and he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, the spark of life. Let's read it now. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a what? Man became a living soul. Now, we're going to talk about the word soul in a moment, but the Bible tells us that God made man from, from the elements of the earth and plus there was the breath of life. So God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and the Bible says then that Adam became a living soul. Now here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, we have the answer to the riddle that has continually confounded men and women about the origins of life in this world. But the Bible says here that God is the one who brought life into this world. God created mankind. He, com- he fashioned mankind from the elements, from the dust of the earth. And that's why when we have a look at the, el- we study the elements in the earth and we study the elements that make up the whole, the, the human human body, we see that there's incredible uh, correspondence between the elements of the earth and the elements that make up the human body. Furthermore, that breath of life that God breathed into the nose of Adam, that spark of life has continued down each generation, each generation continue to build, to, to keep our hearts beating, gives us a consciousness of time and space, uh, it helps, uh, it's caused, causes our 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 lungs to operate even when we're fast asleep we don't even have to concentrate about breathing it just happens we're on default mode why is that because the breath of life that God poured into Adam in the beginning and it gives us an idea of the power of God that just a breath of God into Adam has been sufficient for the billions and billions of people that have have come uh, from the lineage of Adam ever since to survive the way we have. It's a marvelous thing of the power of God when you think about it. But the breath of life is just the life force. That's what it uh, what it actually is. But the word soul. Let's think about this. The word soul now. It refers to everything that makes up a man and a woman. It's our personality. It's our appearance. It's our consciousness. It's the way the, um, just those unique things about us. This is what a soul is. It's a complete person. And the Bible says that God has given us uh, the breath of life. And with that, we have a consciousness. We have an awareness. We have a conscience and uh, we have a sense of of living in this time and space today. The the famous 17th century philosopher René Descartes declared cogito ergo sum. Translated, I think, therefore I am. Consciousness comes from God, as does our conscience itself. 
being that inner moral law, that quite still voice that, that impresses us what is right and what is wrong. You know, one of the things that atheists have never been able to answer, that, that, that painful question that they're confronted with, where does consciousness come? You know, if it doesn't come from another life form, where does consciousness come? And the reality is that consciousness came from God, as does the conscience. You know, God... God's still small voice within each one of us that prompts us and pricks us if we're doing the wrong thing. The Bible actually teaches it's the Holy Spirit. It's His ministry upon our conscience that directs us and leads us in the right way in order that we can be all that God wants us to be, that we can be good parents, that we can be good spouses, that we can be good citizens in the place and the country in which we find ourselves. So truly we are made in the image of God. We are walking miracle but we came from the dust of the earth and the breath of life the soul refers to everything that a person is i'm a soul you're a soul we're all souls soul it's the sum tight total of what makes a person here in australia uh, if we go to the shops, and I'm sure it's the same in the United States, England, Canada, New Zealand, these sort of places in the Western world, where you go to the shops and it might be very quiet, people will say, I went to the shops the other day and there wasn't a soul to be seen anywhere. What is that referring to? It's just identifying the fact that there weren't many people around. A soul refers to a person. When we read of aeronautical or nautical accidents where there's been a loss, loss of life, it will be said that such and such number of souls perished at sea or perished in the crash. Again, the word souls there is just referring to people. I'm a soul, you're a soul. Now, am I making this up? I'm definitely not making this up. We can go to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read this. Then those who gladly received his word, that's the apostle Peter's word, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000, what? 3,000 souls were baptized. What does the, the, the word soul here refer to? It's referring to a person. So we understand now that we are mortal. We are subject to death. And the word soul is just referring to a person. I'm a soul, you're a soul. We don't have an innate immortal soul, this spirit-like thing that continues on uh, after death. The, door, the death is just a doorway that we pass from this this place to this place here that's not the case the bible says that we are mortal we are subject to death we are not immortal in fact the bible says that god's people are not given immortality until christ returns but the wicked the lost those who've turned their backs on god they never receive immortality they never receive it immortality is a reward given to the righteous I want to read uh, Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4. It says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, where there is no help. His breath goes forth. He returneth to this earth. In that day his thoughts perish. What does it say there? When a person dies, the spark of life which animates men and women, gives them a sense of time and space of consciousness, when that is removed from us, when that goes from us, from God, the Bible says that the lights go off. 
In that time, in that time, their thoughts perish. It's, it's a bit like where we find ourselves tonight. We have the two screens here and they're pre presenting the, the slides that I have on the PowerPoint. But the thing is, once the electricity gets turned off here, everything dies. It's the same with the computer. The computer has action and animation going and there's all sorts of things, activity on the screen. But you disconnect that from the power source, then all of a sudden it goes blank. It's dead. We turn on the light switch and all of a sudden the, the electricity charges the filament and it illuminates the room. It's the same with us. When God removes the spark of life from us, not a conscious spark of life, but the spark of life, we simply forget. We go into a dreamless sleep as the Bible actually teaches. You see, when people teach the idea that you can communicate with de the dead, uh, what they're actually espousing is a view of the immortal soul, that immortality uh, is something that we have now and we continue on with it in the life to come. Therefore, we're just communicating in another fashion through mediums and in sciences and the like, and the communication continues on. But that's not what the Bible teaches about death. The Bible teaches that we're made up of two parts. We're made up of the physical, the dust of the earth, and and we're made up of the breath of life. And it's the combination of the two that makes a living soul. Let's pretend that I'm going to make a box, a wooden box, in fact. To make a wooden box, I need two things. I need wood, obviously, and I need nails. Now, at the present time, I don't have a box but I've got the things that I need to make the box. I've got the nails and I've got the timber. But when I hammer the nails into the timber, then I have the box. It's made up of the nails and it's made up of the timber. But what happens if I pull out all the nails? What happens to the box? Well, the box simply disappears. And the same, it applies to us. When the spark of life that animates our humanity is removed from us, when it stops functioning, when it's separated, then the lights go out and we become brain dead. The ECG just flatlines then because there's no consciousness, there's no awareness, the spark of life has been removed from us and we perish and we, at that point in time, we do not exist. If we go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verse 5, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Of course, we all know here that if Jesus Christ doesn't come back in our lifetime, that we are going to die. Isn't that the case? Of course it is. It's obvious. But the, the Bible says when a person dies, how much do they know? They don't know anything because the Bible identifies death as a dreamless sleep. In Psalm 115 verse 17, we read this. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go where? Any that go into silence. You, you would think that if you had an immortal soul and that if you died and you would go straight to heaven, this is what churches teach, that you would praise God in heaven. It'd be obvious. Who would be the first one that you would praise when you get to heaven? You'd be praising God. You'd be praising Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. You'd be praising heaven. But the Bible says, the dead praise not the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Why? Because they fall into a dreamless sleep. And in fact, 
the word silence here reminds us that in death there's no consciousness. In the book of Psalms chapter 6 verse 5 it says, For in death there is no remembrance in, of you, in the grave who will give you thanks? You see, it's just repeating what we've already learned. So in death, who can give, you, give, give praise to you? No one, because it's, they're in a dreamless sleep. It's as though they are completely unconscious. Nobody praises God in death. Nobody curses God in death. Nobody kneels before the throne of God at de after death and nobody is in hell suffering at death. Why? Because they go down to silence and they don't know anything. That's just a reference to the grave. You think about this. If the dead went to heaven, the righteous dead went to heaven at death, they would certainly be praising God. No question about it. But they don't. The Bible says they just go into the grave, there they sleep. In fact, the term cemetery, it just means what? It just means sleeping place. That's all it is. Because in the grave, there is no remembrance of God. Now, we've, I've had people come to me and say, but don't we have an immortal soul that just lives on and on and on within us? People confuse soul the biblical definition of soul is a person. I'm a, I'm a soul, you're a soul. But some people have adopted the pagan view, which came into Christianity in the early centuries, that we have this immortal spark within us. They've identified that as a soul. And they'll say, but don't we have an immortal soul within us that continues on? But the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, behold, all souls are mine. In other words, behold, all people are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. In other words, the sum total of the person belongs to God. Why? Because he's the creator. It says the soul who sins shall do what? It shall die. Now, this is different. If the soul were immortal, then it would not die. But the Bible challenges this whole view because the Bible says that we're a soul. The soul that sin or the person who sins shall die. We've already discovered that in previous presentations where uh, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. According to the Bible, a soul can what? A soul can die. A person can die. It's just referring to the sum, sum total of what makes me, me, and you, you. It's identifying a fully functioning person. Let's go back to a text that we looked a little earlier and we'll read some other passages. This is found from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, and we'll read verse 5, 6, and verse 10. It says, For the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten now let's pause for a moment the bible says uh in ecclesiastes that the dead know nothing and it says because their memory is forgotten and then it says also their love their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. You see, the Bible tells us, makes it very clear from Old Testament and the New Testament that at death, 
A person knows nothing. Their love, their hatred, their envy, their jealousy, all these things disappear. There's no wisdom. There's no knowledge in the grave. There is no consciousness of death. It is just a dreamless sleep. The Old Testament uh, writers all agreed that death was asleep. In fact, when you read uh, the earlier chapters or the earlier books of the Bible, you see that such and such such and such slept with his fathers or rests with his father. Obviously, it's referring to sleep. They don't have their reward at death. In the book of Job, again, we read this. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake or be aroused from their sleep. The word death and sleep are synonymous. It says his sons come to honour and he knows it not and they are brought low but he does not perceive it. According to the Bible when a person dies when they're in the grave even though their loved ones are heartbroken and they come to the graveside and they may be beating their breasts and lamenting and wailing and in a terrible situation in a terrible state the Bible says that those people who are dead they don't know why because the memory of them is forgotten the Bible identifies death as asleep. It's a dreamless sleep and there's no awareness, there's no consciousness in the grave at all. In fact, in the New Testament, the same truth is repeated. There's consistency because it's all inspired by God. And there was a time where Jesus also, on many occasions, in fact, described death as asleep. I want to give one episode, just one, because we don't have time for any more tonight. If we were to go back to John or go to John chapter 11, which is what we will do, we will see that on one occasion, a good friend of Jesus, he is sick. He is sick unto death. The message comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick. The Bible says then that Jesus delayed returning, going back to Bethany, the place in which Lazarus lived. And uh, he continued ministering. And then after four days, he decides that he's going back now to Bethany. Now, when he tells his disciples that it's time to go back to Lazarus, back to Bethany now, this is the interchange that happened between the disciple and Jesus. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may what? Awake him from his sleep. Uh, The But the disciples thought that he was talking about having a rest. And they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. However, Jesus spoke about his death, but they thought that he'd spoken of taking a rest. Where? A rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, what? What does it say there? Lazarus is dead. Jesus said it very plainly. He says, Lazarus, our friend, is asleep. The disciples think he's talking about resting in bed. Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, later in the chapter, the Bible tells us that Jesus has made his way to Bethany and he's first confronted by Martha. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my my brother, my, my brother, yes, brother would not have died because he has died by this, this time. And Jesus well knew that. How did Jesus respond? He said, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother 
had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. And Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last days. Let's stop for a moment because Martha is testifying to her belief in the resurrection at the last day. She didn't believe that Lazarus had gone straight to heaven. She didn't believe that Lazarus was rewarded at death. She says, no, no, I know that he's going to be rewarded at the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he, what? What does it say there? He shall live. And Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus is saying here, Martha, don't cry. Your brother will will rise again. And she thinks that he's referring to the resurrection at the last days. But Jesus already has it in his mind that he's going to bring Lazarus from the tomb at this occasion because we read that Jesus asked to direct him to the tomb where the body of Lazarus was laid. And then Jesus says these words, when the door of the tomb is removed, And when he had thus spoken, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, it says a loud voice here. This doesn't, this means that Jesus didn't go, just in case things didn't go right, wrong, right or wrong. The Bible says that Jesus said it with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot and grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto him, or saith unto them, loose him and let him go. You see, Martha believed in the resurrection at the last day because it's biblical. And following this, Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come what? He says, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't say come down from heaven because he knew he wasn't in heaven. He knew the people when they die, they sleep and they, re- they wait their reward of immortality at the time of Christ's second coming. So Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus woke him up after four days in the tomb. He was dead. Actually, Mary and Martha both said, Lord, if you remove the stone, it will stink because his body will have already started to decompose. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he call Lazarus forth from the tomb? In order to remove the fear of death from you. Because at the, at the presence of Jesus, death trim, trembles. Jesus said, I am the life. I am the truth. I am the light. I am the truth. Jesus says, whoever believes in me shall, ha- shall have life. We have this language. And that's why at the presence of Jesus, death trembles because Jesus has power over death. Uh, these sentiments are repeated in First Thessalonians chapter 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall do what? The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord 
the Bible's clear, it's at the second coming of Christ when families are re reunited, when those who've been torn apart by death are reunited. They're given immortality, they're given incorruptibility. That's when eternal life begins. They rest in the grave and they wait for Jesus' return. You see, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, reread this. In fact, Jesus re-emphasized this point over and over again in chapter 6 of the book of John. He says this in John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all, that all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up when? At the last day in verse 40 of the same chapter John chapter 60 and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up when at the last day again in John no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day the reward of immortality is given at the time of Christ's second coming. And Jesus repeats it over and over again here. Do you think Jesus is trying to press home the point that the reward of the righteous happens at the last day and not at death? I think he definitely is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about um, the second coming of Christ and the reward of the righteous to the church at Corinth, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. This is all second coming language here, friends. That's what we're reading here, second coming language. He says, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, inspired by God, that the dead are given immortality at the time of Christ's return. Let's not forget here as well that Paul is using, is describing something that defies human language. Now, he talks about men and women of this world who have been changed in preparation for the life to come. In this world, we are mortal, subject to death. At the time of Christ's second coming, we are rewarded with immortality that is no longer subject to death. At the time of Christ's second coming, we are uh, prior to that, we are corruptible. That is, we have bodies that break down. We have bodies that are to get diseased. We, you know, um, we have natural drawings to sin and rebellion. We have fallen human nature. But the Bible says at the time of Christ's second coming, we are made incorruptible. That is, no longer subject to sin, no longer drawn to sin. Our bodies are renewed. They no longer degenerate the way they do now. We have all the strength and the, vig and the vigor of youth, the Bible tells tells us over and over again this is part of the reward of the righteous immortality and incorruptibility you see we are changed at the time of Christ's second coming in preparation to live among beings who have never sinned that's quite a thought isn't it to live in a world in a realm in a place where sin has never existed that's why God's people are changed at the second coming the gift of immortality is not something within us now, but it's given to us at Jesus' return. If we were to cast our minds back to World War II, in 1944, 
June 6 were the D-Day landings, the deliverance landings, where a quarter of a million men landed on the beaches of Normandy in France and their mission to liberate Europe from the control of Nazi Germany. And after 12 months or thereabouts, they had, they had succeeded in liberating Europe and the war had ended. But I want to tell you, a far greater rescue mission is going to take place at the time of Christ's second coming. When Jesus Christ comes to liberate those men and women who have been trapped in a world of sin, who have been trapped in bodies with fallen natures, who have been trapped in bodies that are breaking down and ageing. When Jesus Christ comes back, even those who are sleeping in the graves will be resurrected and renewed. And people will not have the sense of passing of time, whether it's a month or whether it's six thousand years it will be seem as though they've just dropped off to sleep and the next thing that the righteous will hear is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says well done good and faithful servant come forward forth to the joy of the Lord imagine that what that day will be when people who have been torn apart by death, families, brothers and sisters are reunited because the grave cannot hold God's people down, friends. And the Bible is very clear when we look at this subject about death, when we look at the subject of the afterlife, the Bible makes it clear that the immortality that many people believe they have within them at the present time is not the case. We are subject to death. We are mortal, but we are given immortality at the time of Christ's second coming. Does that make sense? Put up your hand if you understand now that the Bible uses the terms death and sleep interchangeably. God bless you. God bless you. Also, put up your other hand if you understand now that immortality is not something that is given until a person is rewarded at the second coming of Christ. God bless you. God bless you. All right. Very good. And I'm glad that this has made sense uh, to you all here tonight. Now, next week, we're going to do another presentation, but this is talking about communicating with the dead because there are many people who say that they can communicate with the dead. Well, we're going to continue on this theme and I'll show you that that's an absolute impossibility and I think you already know that now. But the main reason for the presentation this week, next week is because there are a couple of passages in the Bible which seem to contradict what I've shared with you tonight. And we're going to be addressing those two key passages as well next week. Now, for everybody who is watching at home, who are on the internet, YouTube, live streaming, etc., you can get all the information, the handouts that our ushers are going to give out at the end of this program. You can get all of this information by going to theorchardmelbourne.org.au. The, the Go to the tab, contact us and request the materials to this program here and we'll mail them out to you uh, in uh, no time whatsoever. They're free of charge no matter where you live in the world. All right. Well, we've had a good evening tonight. Again, we've covered a lot of ground, but why don't we close, ask the Lord's blessing as we just go our own separate ways now. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for your care and love upon us. 
And Father, now as we reflect on this incredible truth of the fact that we sleep in the grave, we wait for the second coming of Christ. It all makes sense now, Father, because we, we hear that uh, when we're in church services sometime at funeral services that, that such and such has gone to heaven. And then when we get to the graveside, we also hear of the same person that are waiting for the resurrection. It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. And I pray, Father, that after our study tonight, the people will be settled and clear in their minds that everybody waits in the grave until they hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this opportunity to study your word in this beautiful city of Melbourne, Father. We praise your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. I'm walking through the bush just outside Sydney in Australia. And if you look around at the kinds of vegetation that's growing here, you can see that this is a dry Mediterranean kind of environment. In fact, uh, it's not just the gum trees that you see around here. I see I've been joined by a beautiful little bush turkey. And yet scattered around Sydney, there are small patches of rainforest. They're like little islands of rainforest in a sea of dry bush. Where did these little patches of rainforest come from? Well, there are actually several different theories about that. One theory explaining these rainforest islands around Sydney is that in the past, this was a much wetter area, and rainforest naturally grew everywhere. Over the course of time, over the course of millions of years, the climate changed and dried out and left behind just these little patches of rainforest. That theory is kind of problematic because it's hard to imagine how little tiny patches of rainforest could survive over millions of years. There was never a bushfire that wiped everything out. There was never a drought in the course of millions of years that wiped everything out. That seems optimistic. So there are other theories that might explain this phenomenon somewhat better. One alternative theory is that the rainforests are in fact not completely isolated. And as a consequence of that, if one patch of rainforest got wiped out, perhaps it just got reseeded when the conditions were right again. Birds or other animals may have bought seeds and perhaps the wind did it. And that's how these patches of rainforest have been perpetuated. Yet another theory would be that perhaps these little islands of rainforest are not millions of years old. Perhaps they're only hundreds or thousands of years old, and things have changed somewhat more rapidly than the theory of millions of years would suggest. And of course, more than one of these theories could be true. Maybe the rainforests are not completely isolated. 
maybe they're not that old. In either case, or when put together, those theories are consistent with the biblical record of history in which life on Earth is not millions of years old, but in fact only thousands of years old. Obviously, the theories that a person finds persuasive are going to be different depending on their worldview. I personally find the wonder of this beautiful area of the world to be so consistent with the biblical understanding of reality in which God created in the relatively recent past that I tend to go with theories about a recent change in climate and possibly that these rainforest islands are not completely isolated. Either of those theories is consistent with the biblical understanding of reality and of history. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.